0: Hello, this is Corey. Welcome to the 15-minute hour. Uh, Today I'm joined by Calvin and we have a slightly new perspective here as far as the uh, camera goes. I did want to uh, address the irony in doing one episode against photography and then the next one going straight to camera. I thought that was quite interesting. (laughs) Um, But uh, Calvin thinks that this is what the uh, AI overlords prefer in the YouTube, so this is... uh, destiny we have chosen (laughs) alas we've destroyed the mystery and with it the eros of of uh not knowing not knowing my face or calvin's face or you know what sort of space it is that we're even talking about this stuff in. but here you go (laughs) so today we
1: had several topics of discussion but but the first one that was asked of us was sent in from a, a podcast listener he wanted to hear your thoughts on astral projection and lucid dreaming. Both of them, what the differences? Are they safe? And he had a few other questions we can address as we talk about it. But just your thoughts on those two 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 practices, if you want to say.
0: Yeah, well, there's a sense in which you can blur it. Uh, I mean, the the difference, and so far that, I mean. Coming from both a strictly secular psychoanalytic point of view and then also a more metaphysical point of view, there's a sense in which I think at least some dreams are always already in to some degree um the astral realm in a certain sense dreams are a projection of our psyche into an astral plane already as it is, not always, but I think sometimes that's the case um sort of the same thing with what we would call in today's parlance, a schizophrenic, it's not that what a schizophrenic is seeing is not there, it's just their subjective apprehension of things that are there that most people can't see, Um, sort of like a Rorschach and our individual collective psyche sort of combines with the collective psyche of the unconscious as a whole Um, and so you're apprehending things that are there but you're reading that within the confines of your own particular prejudices. you know, what a schizophrenic sees in a waking state, you might say, is what we all see in the dream state. As Plato said, uh, the the unvirtuous man does in waking what we all are fine to do in our sleep and dreams. And Freud echoes much the same sentiment. Um, so there's a sense in which the astral realm is, is sort of always there, perva- pervasive and around us. And, you know, near-death experiences or outer-body experiences, OBEs, alien abductions, demonic possessions, which may or may not even be the same thing actually, are sort of putting us in that plane in a way that we aren't normally aware. And of course, pharmacon, or as we say, drugs, hallucinogenics sort of break down the natural barrier that keeps us from perceiving that realm. Um, You can see it as, you know, Wilhelm Reich was sort of, I guess, the first guy to really take a scientific deduction on this and just call it the uh, uh, the, uh, orgone field or whatever you want to say sort of the body armoring that we have naturally that um, protects us from that realm because we'd be insane if we just saw it constantly or shamans or schizophrenic, I don't know. Um, So the lucid dreaming in in everyday parlance, though, would be more so you have consciousness of your facticity of dreaming in the dream state. And there's ways you can um, practice to actually bring that about intentionally. Some people just do it quite naturally. Um, And once you're in that state, there's certain tricks you can do to for instance, talk to a manifestation of your unconscious in a character, or I'm going to go around this corner and there'll be a jetpack so I can fly. There's a charming story I heard of one guy who was flying in a lucid dream next to a friend um, he met in the dream. And he noticed that he started to slow down, like there was a, a lag in the flying, in the, the development of the land below him. And um, he, he says, You know, why, why is this taking so long? And his friend turns to him and says, you know, I'm your unconscious. Who do you think has to come up with all this stuff? (laughs) So um, there's a certain processing that has to go on there on your own subjective mental capacity. Uh, This is probably what Freud, part of what Freud's talking about when he says it's actually the intelligent people who are at most risk of being dominated by their unconscious. Because the unconscious is just five steps ahead of wherever you are. So, you know, if you're quite a capable person intellectually, well, your unconscious is all the more capable. The gap between you and your unconscious is greater than the average moron. So you're much more liable to deceive yourself, actually, in that way. Um, whereas when we're talking about astral projection, um, I've never experienced it intentionally. I have experienced it accidentally. I didn't get too far into it, but I've read a lot about it, and I've met people who have. Um, I think what Sarah from Rose says is the most interesting, or I should say for most modern listeners, probably the best thing to read on it. Most of the stuff, I mean, as with anything where New Age got its slimy claws on, um, you're gonna be in a lot of danger in reading the literature on this. And Sarah from Rose's literature on it is quite safe. I mean, you could read um, Soul After Death, Orthodoxy Religion of the Future. Uh, He talks about the astral realm there, especially Orthodoxy Religion of the Future, if I recall. and and basically, what you're seeing there is a is a real spiritual realm. There's actually layers, um, and pretty much every religion culture knows about this, um, and they all you know call the layers different things, but they're there. Now, what you see in the astral realm is going to be like in the dream state, subjective to you. But what you are experiencing is there. You're experiencing spirits, demons, um, you know, uh, in the in the Greek sense, and, and that these spirits that may or may not be good or evil, or whatever have you. Um, and they're they're gonna play with you, they're gonna play tricks on you. And some of those tricks may be quite innocent, some of them may be damning. So you got you have to be very careful. It's not something you should go into intentionally. Even even the the pagan mystics who went into these realms intentionally or guided others in there had all these precautions. And those traditions are mostly totally lost nowadays. You know, unless you're like some random Native American in some tribe somewhere that, you know, hasn't been decimated by colonization and whatnot, and still has access to their ancestors and their traditions. And even then, it's still a risk. Um, to say nothing of you know, reading some neo pagan resource on a warding spell you find online somewhere. That's probably just going to fuck you over even more. So it's it's very dangerous. I wouldn't recommend it. But it it is something that actually exists. But uh, uh, again, I would I would definitely recommend reading Sarah from Roses text on those.
1: It's very interesting how you mentioned how dangerous it is because the first time I ever came across the term or idea of astral projection was probably when I was in middle school it, it was a YouTube tutorial some guy explaining how to astral project and the big reason in the video he explained why you would want to is because while you were outside of your body y- you could do your homework
0: yeah you can you can uh, do several things like that you can um uh your body will be in a sleep state and regaining its you know cellular regeneration a- a whatever um but uh the spiritual, you know, if you've seen Neon Genesis, the the AT field, so to speak, um, the orgone, the the chakra, whatever you want to call it, the the energy around you is um, depreciated. So you're basically making your body a target for any sort of spirit. You can be possessed and lose your body. You know, stuff like that happens if you're out of it long enough. Um, it, it can not be practical. And, you know, various masters, including military generals, have used this for precisely for these sorts of reasons. Um, your body's resting and you're like out spying on the enemy camps you know that was what some chinese war generals would do um and obviously people in the in the spiritual ascetic tradition would would do this in order to study while their body was regaining sleep they could still study or meditate or pray um while they uh were uh you know in their astral realm or whatever and you can do other weird stuff like you know people will call it the akashic records or whatever and you can like try to get into the emil dream or whatever you want to call it but um, I don't think it's something that anyone in today's age is really prepared for. I, I mean, I think what the fathers generally say about this is quite wise, you know, and I'm saying this as someone who holds value, scientific value in, in dream interpretation, um, which is that it's better just to not really be too concerned with these things because once you do get obsessed with them, um, even to speak nothing of astral projection, even just mere dreams, um, demons can really start to toy with you in that, in that respect. So it's just, it's just better avoided.
1: So even lucid dreaming isn't entirely safe?
0: No. Um, I mean, imagination is, uh, I, I, say, I say, you know, some people say like reason is the domain of the devil. And I'm not saying I disagree with that, but imagination just as much. In many ways, this is why Western spirituality got so out of hand because it started to focus a lot on imagination. Okay. And imagination or logo, logosmoi or uh, logos uh, logoi Logosmoy would be the best term, this sort of sphere of mentality that most people nowadays, you know, I think we talked about this before, sort of assume is this their thinking, but really it's only a small fraction of what goes on in here, um, in this, you know, signal point is is us. You know, a lot of it's like other entities, and some of those are spiritual entities, and you know, in the sense of the pure spirit. And um, it's a it's a grave mistake to assume that it's our thought, but especially when we're in dreams or daydreaming or in active imagination. We, we make ourselves like a sponge to that sort of spiritual energy, and so we become much more susceptible to these delusions and uh the the part where we're wounded most in our in our pride is where that can really get out of hand if, if you have any whatever opinion you have of yourself you'll start to feed into these imaginations and these delusions and you get people who I think are otherwise quite normal that develop what psychiatrists would call something like um, um narcissistic schizophrenia or Or paranoid schizophrenia because they they sort of run in a logical uh extreme uh with with these delusions i think it was gk chesterson said it you know the the most insane people or the crazy people are not the ones who don't have logic or reason it's actually the people who have reason and logic too much and if you talk to otherwise normal intellectually normal paranoid schizophrenics or delusional schizophrenics or narcissistic schizophrenics if you actually follow if you ask them questions about their delusions from point A to B to C to D, it's actually usually quite extremely logical. I mean, they're much more, in my experience, much more well-thought-out people than the average person on the street. But when viewed from the grand scheme of things, it's ridiculous. It's kind of like Calvinism. You know, everything within it is integral and it makes sense. But then you look at it from outside, and you're like, well, wait, this is this is absolutely ridiculous. You know, and it's like, same thing. You know, Calvinism very well could be true, or these paranoid schizophrenics and their delusions could very well be true, and I'm the one who's who's wrong. Um but it's so ridiculous to think that on on a certain level. So you sort of just step out of that of pragmatism. So you wouldn't say it's something
1: that you should do to get extra time before a midterm exam, because that's that's what my friend was talking about in terms yeah. of lucid dreaming. He wanted to try it, so because he had an exam coming up. But it's
0: you you think the risk outweighs the definitely. Okay. Yeah, it's it's very very dangerous. I wouldn't recommend it. Okay. okay. I, if you if you absolutely insist on doing it, I definitely advise you to find a spiritual master or someone who is has a real liturgical oral connection to a tradition that's at least 2000 maybe a thousand years old um because that's that's the only place you're going to get any legitimate warding from these sorts of things and even then he's not going to let you go into that until after at least you know a few years of practice of other things because you really have to train your mind and your spirit and your body to to even begin to to you know be in that state properly, so it's it's not something I would definitely recommend to the vast majority of people who have access to internet where they can listen to this podcast. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay, and now moving on to the the broader subject of today's podcast. Do you want to explain exactly what we're going to be talking about? With we talked about a little bit earlier the whole uh, uh, mythology of the Old Testament, mm-hmm. some other. Topics? Do you want to explain what we're what, what we're going to be doing in this episode?
0: Yeah, we're talking about three categories of of things here. I guess that sort of meld into one. One is this uh, dichotomy between esotericism and exotericism that I think is often very misunderstood, especially within Christianity from Christians. Um, and then another topic within that is this idea of what mythology is and what would it mean to say that the Bible's mythology and why there's a modern error in assuming that if something's mythology it can't be historical like the two are mutually exclusive and i think that's ridiculous and and then the third being that um uh this this notion this very modern dichotomy between monotheism and polytheism and why it's really just ridiculous and why it trips people up when it comes to religious scholarship
1: all right. So, starting off, do we want to divulge into the the mythology aspect well, first? Well, let's you... let's
0: start with the esoteric okay. and exoteric because I think that'll feed into the myth- mythological quite well. Okay. So, in you know, ex- ex- esoteric being that it's it's uh, in the most common parlance of the everyday person, something that is elite or reserved for a few initiated. Um, I think the the better understanding is that it's hidden, occult, and occult not in the bad sense. You know, gods occult, angels are occult. It just means hidden, not in immediate sight. Um, so the physical world is what is is exoteric in this sense. And then the spiritual world is esoteric um, or occult. Um, and the esoteric is the inner teaching, the hidden meaning. I mean, Christ himself talks about this when he's talking to the apostles and the apostles asking, you know, why does he teach in parables? Basically, Christ says that if he taught exoterically, it would damn people hearing it all the more so. Because Um, that would be held against them. So he says, you know, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, that's the esoteric meaning. That's the esoteric teaching. One has to have the heart and the mind and the spirit attuned correctly to understand the inner teachings of things. And the early church fathers are totally on this. I mean, you know, Gnosticism is such a bad word now, but many of the early fathers refer to themselves as Gnostic. And Gnostic in this sense really just means one who has inner knowledge. Um, It's not, it's not a, it's not a sense of pride if it's true. I mean, it's false It's false humility if you say something that you know to be or understand to be false. So when the fathers are saying that they have a Gnostic understanding of the scriptures or whatever, they're calling themselves Gnostic. It just means this inner light. Uh, St. Simeon the New is the most developed theologian on this. You know, we call him the third and final theologian in the Orthodox Church, um, along with St. Gregory and St. John the Apostle. And, you know, the, this this idea is that there's a light of God, God's energy, God's light that you really have to have in order to be saved. You know, that might not come to you in this, light, in this life. And indeed the fires of hell is, is that light, right? So there, there's the purgation in, that, in hell through God's light. And very few people actually gain access to that light in this life. That's why you don't generally have very many saints. I think in the West, this notion developed into massa Dimonata, cause it's like, well, if you don't receive the light in this life, you're just screwed. You know, eventually they had to ameliorate that with purgatory. You know, in in Orthodoxy in the East, we never really had this problem because we had what they would call purgatory from the get-go. And we still say there's a massa demnata in the sense most people don't get the light in this life, very few people. So only very few people are saved in this life. Um, But, you know, we sort of have the light of God in the afterlife too, in Hades, in Christ harrowing hell. He has put a light there uh, for eternity. Um, And indeed, that light isn't mediated in the afterlife in the way it is now. It's In a certain sense, it's much more difficult to reject there, I think. But but in any case, um, the, the esoteric being, or the Gnostic is, is having this light in some capacity, in some degree. Um, so when, when Origen comes along and he's teaching about the reading of scriptures, which East or West is, is the most influential teaching there has been in Christianity on how to read scriptures, even into Protestantism. And, and basically that the way you read scripture, Old Testament or New, is always through the lens of Christ. That that's that re, that's really origin, and also in that respect, that there is a hidden deeper meaning. So you have to understand the literal meaning. You know, it's kind of like what some grammarians say about learning grammar: is that you can't break the rules of grammar well in an artistic way until you've mastered them. Same thing with cooking, or you know, many many arts. And in this in this respect, origin saying you have to first master the literal historical meaning of scripture. So this isn't again, this is other modern dichotomy that something's allegorical or metaphorical or poetic, it therefore can't be historical, okay? And that's not, that's not the ancient understanding. That's not the classical. It's not the orthodox understanding. Um, it's both and. So we say that there is metaphorical, poetic, um, you know, uh, meta-historical meaning in, in the words of scripture, but it doesn't mean that they didn't, didn't happen historically as well. Um, the sense in which they happen historically, or what, you know, what we'll talk about later, mythologically may be different, but they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. And so you have to understand that level first. And then there's a second level, which is the allegorical. And that's more the poetic or literary, as we might say in modern terms. And then there's the moral meaning that is revealed through that. And then finally, you have the Gnostic or esoteric or uh, spiritual meaning, which is only given to a few. And usually, I think everyone to some degree who really tries to practice or observe the spiritual life with whatever scripture they're working with, be them Muslim or Buddhist or whatever. Uh, there's usually a few verses that will relate to someone in a very deep way that they contemplate their whole life. And I think these people probably gain access to that final level. Um, but then you have people who are just you know, saints and just filled with grace. And I think they actually more or less gain that on the entirety of scripture. Um, and they they understand this in, in a spiritual, mystical way, which is to say they couldn't really teach it, at least not by words. It's something that can only be taught by example, and especially in the Christian understanding through suffering with the words in the heart. Um, it's kind of like St. Mary of Egypt, where she didn't even know about the Bible or read the Bible, really. And when she was found, you know, after wandering in the desert naked for 40 years, she knew all the scriptures. And I don't think she knew them per se exactly as they were written. But the point is that, if the scriptures were lost, if they were burned, you know, I think something like the Protestant idea would would be in a moral chaos because they sort of see scripture the way not dissimilar to the way Muslims view the scripture of the Quran, which is to say that's directly the word of God. Um, and we would we would say Christ is the word of God, and scripture is an emanation of that logos, which is Christ. But if the scriptures themselves were lost, they could be rewritten and they wouldn't be exactly the same, but they'd be rewritten in the experience of the church and the fathers and the saints and the pious. And that it's that experience itself emanating from the spirit within the heart, the, you know, as Paul says, the law written on the heart, um, that is actually the true word of God, Christ in the heart. And that emanates manifest in, in words on a page, but they aren't the same thing. Uh, you, don't, you don't want to die by the letter of the law, you know, as Paul says. And so the esoteric is what is ultimately beyond the word, beyond the literal. It's mystical. It can't be written. It can't be spoken. It can only be known through suffering, through experience. Um, and and so this 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 is another problem with the enlightenment. You know, because I've I've shot on the enlightenment before. I know it's a common target these days, but it does bear being criticized because I think a lot of people just assume that it's a good thing. Um, and the the, the you had you had all these sciences that were melded together in, in a sort of unified, univocal way with uh, theology and metaphysics and art. And, you know, like alchemy versus chemistry or astrology versus astronomy. You know, historically, it goes back and forth in the West, but historically in the East, these weren't bad things. And you'll still find Eastern fa- fathers like St. Paisi that talks about the phases of the moon and how that affects pregnancy and when you should garden. Um, you know, so th- this isn't, this, this isn't a bad thing. And what happens in the West is the enlightenment happens. And with that, it's like anything that sounds woohoo or mystical suddenly is dismissed, even on religious grounds. And so what happens is that the gypsies come in and the gypsies steal it. And they sort of make that into this divine occultic divinatory, not divine, divinatory occultic practice. You know, they did this with tarot. Like tarot was not a mystical, well, it, mystical, it's not a, um, divinatory. It's not a, pagan practice. It was, you know, made, might have roots in in pagan cultures, but so do a lot of Christian ideas, but ultimately it manifests in the way we know it today through a Christian, particularly Italian Christian um, lens and archetype. And the the tarot is just Rorschach with, you know, more overt archetypes, for example. And when you're, when you're using a tarot card, you're, you're not reading the future, at least you shouldn't be, but you're, you're looking to someone's unconscious. And with their knowledge of what they tell you about the card, you're using your knowledge of the archetype to make a synthesis. And and that's giving you a projection of that person to analyze. Okay, so that's the idea more or less, and without that jargon going on for something like tarot, or even astrology or alchemy, then the enlightenment happens, and those things are totally forgotten about and divorced, and they become woohoo. And then something like the New Age happens, you know, as a natural response 100, 200 years later, and um, 250 years later after the enlightenment And all of a sudden, these things get brought back in full force, but without any sort of Christian, uh, true traditional Christian defense mechanism. And these things are running amok. And so even on one hand, I'm going to sit here and say, like, you know, tarot is not bad per se. I'm I'm nonetheless going to say you should not go to, to consult any tarot reader because they're going to be in all these weird ideas about what it's supposed to do, and they're probably doing divination. And so your priest is right to say you shouldn't go to a tarot reader or astrologer, even if astrology or tarot reading or alchemy are not wrong. Um, they've been so perverted and, you know, they they open you up to this spiritual realm where it's total anarchy and you don't have any defense. Um, so the the whole divorce between the esoteric and the exoteric that has happened in the West is extremely disastrous, not just for religious, but even secular people. Um do you think that's one of the bigger reasons people seem to be
1: leaving the church, at least in America, because I feel like a lot of Christian beliefs, they are, as you say, woohoo. You know, yeah. we believe in the spiritual realm where, you know, there are angels, there are demons. But then as soon as anyone starts to mention, you know, astral projection, like we talked earlier, or anything spiritual, it's kind of shut down, yeah. seen as taboo or fake. And it kind of lends you to believe, well, what is real? Yes. Okay, yeah. and then people go and search for that and they find it, but in something with, with evil roots, potentially.
0: Yeah. Christianity in the West, which is to say the whole world, because the West is the whole world now, um, colonization, neo-imperialism, um, it, it's, it's lost its touch with the esoteric teachings. And if, if you take something like astral projection, that's the term we use nowadays. But if you rid yourself of the mentality of everything associated with that term, and you read the lives of the saints, you'll see astral projection. Um, look up um, St. Christina the Astonishing and see what she did with her astral projection after she was buried, right? You know, th- this stuff is not outside of Christianity. And I mean, obviously, I guess, if you're taking this very hard, strict Protestant view where all, you know all the Catholic saints are pagans, okay, sure. But I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about the general everyday Christian as some level of ties to, to actual tradition. If you actually look at the lives of the saints, if you look at what the church fathers talking about, if you look at what the saints write about, the theologians, um, the sainted theologians, terms like astral projection or all these new age woohoo terms are very much clearly being used by the saints and fathers. Okay. We've just somewhat naturally have come to be afraid of them because of what that context carries in the new age and all this sort of MK Ultra and Macy conference programming. Um, so there, on one hand, there's total legit reason to be very cautious of these things. But you have to take the caution with a mixture and acknowledgement that these things are very real and precisely, and so far they're real, there's a proper way to go about them or to avoid them completely. And until I think that what you're talking about, Calvin, with people leaving the faith because they, they don't seem to, they become aware, I think, they have a spiritual awakening of this other plane of existence on one hand. And they realize that their churches or the people they know who are Christian don't have a way to deal with these things and that's a big that's because of the divorce between the esoteric and the exoteric. And then on the other hand you have people who learn about these things but don't have direct spiritual experience with them and they sort of just become aware that you have all these spiritual traditions in the world that seem so much more rich and tied with the esoteric than modern Christianity does. And I think quite logically they say, well this must be a bs religion if it if it doesn't have any connection to these much deeper rituals and understandings of reality that for the most part, Christianity seems to have totally intellectualized. In a certain sense, it's better to just not even talk about angels and demons and all this woohoo stuff, you know, as we're calling it, um, until you've actually experienced it. And I think Christianity is no longer experiential, it's, into, it's too intellectualized in the sense that it's, it's dogma, it's doctrine. And the dogma and, and doctrine serve a purpose, but they have to be experienced. And modern Christianity does not really stress experiential relation um and honestly that that's going to come through a sacramental life so obviously if you water down the sacramental life or you just get rid of the sacraments completely as some of the protestants do you're not going to have that experience and it's going to become this you know purely it's kind of ironic because you know the initial protestant reformers were trying to get rid of the scholasticism and intellectualism rightly you know I'm with the protestants here that was in the west but it it incidentally actually made the problem even worse because now it's even more intellectualized um so it's it's a catch 22 situation
1: it's it's very interesting, yeah. And as you mentioned, the the uh, experience it, I I've asked people before, like who are Christian and believe it, like do they feel anything, and they they almost exclusively say no. Like, have you ever felt anything when you're praying? Have you ever really experienced any deep connection to what you believe? And it's almost always no. And then it, what's troubling is there are people who who may be atheists may not believe in any god yet it seems like they, in doing other practices, do get this connection. Right. Yeah, I guess it could be very confusing to people. Yes. And I guess that leads into the, the whole mythology part, as they've watered down a lot of the, the woohoo stuff, as we're calling it. It's made it so that the Old Testament, at least a friend of mine was talking about this, and I was actually thinking about this, the Old Testament, what parts of this are real? Because yeah. it seems so disconnected from what we believe in the church is possible today, How can we believe these things are real? Is this mythology? Is this just Jewish mythology? If it is, does that mean it's less valuable? Potentially more valuable? What are your thoughts on that?
0: Um, I think there's a modern obsession here that should sort of be addressed from the get-go, which is this obsession with um, I mean, personally, and so far, I, I entertain the Christian truth. I think the Old Testament is historical. Obviously, it's metaphorical, too. Again, for me, they're not mutually exclusive. But I think Christianity becomes very weird when you divorce it from the historical sense. Um it really it's it's a much more historically bodily religion than others and so it's it's even more dangerous to do it with that than it is other religions I think. But even going beyond that, I think there's a modern obsession with historicity and the literal aspect of things that no one reading the scriptures historically really had the same mindset with. Um so there's there's that on one hand, on on the other hand when we're talking about mythology, um you know I was talking about with you this earlier Calvin but mythology is is not it's not something that's false it's in 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 the classical traditional understanding the mythology is higher than history history is the ideas of time written by flawed men whereas mythology is the ideas of time given to men by perfect or nearly perfect gods so mythology is actually higher um, now, even in a in more modern sense, though, if you want to see mythology as this more, say, Jungian sort of deal where it's a um, sort of collectivization of archetypes, um, even here, right, it, it has a higher level of psychological accuracy that relates to people in a more immediate, visceral way than the history into which we're born into. I mean, to borrow Heidegger, there's a sense in which we're thrown into the world and there's a history here that we can learn about or not. But it doesn't really negate the aspect of this thrownness. We're there, you know, we're being thrown into being in time, whether we want to or not. And, and the agency that we develop in, in actual studying history is not, is not um, to be negated. It's very true that, you know, the more you know about history, the more you know, and, and not just reading history textbooks, but actually thinking, contemplating your facticity and existence in time and the family and traditions you come from and doing something to put a, to sort of own that. Or even heroically defy it, you know, whichever one. Um, there's a sense that there is agency there. But really, mythology is going to be much more personal um, in in the way that you actually understand who you are and the sort of archetypes you inevitably will embody throughout your life. Um and so mythology is not I think I think the way to understand mythology is not like stories people tell about the gods. Um mythology is more so the visceral human element expressing itself in a culture in a particularly subjective way, not dissimilar to what I was talking about earlier with uh, dreams and Rorschach or tarot cards. Um, there's something factually there, which is just ink inkblot or you know, a tarot card or this image you see in a dream. Um, but the way you're experiencing it is subjective, and it says something particularly about you. And self-knowledge is the way you conquer yourself, which is the hardest task to do um, and the beginning of real virtue. Um, so it's not to be dismissed. And again, if I'm calling the Old Testament mythology, I'm going to call the New Testament mythology too. I'm calling all of history in a way, even modern history, its own mythology. Um, inevitably, you know, we put our own perspectives into history, including contemporary history, that dominate uh, things that are actually factually true and, and are forgotten or just uh, put on the side of history. I think there are many things in history, both long ago and even now in the, in the stories we tell about ourselves now that are propagandistic. Um, and outside of critical thinking, you're not gonna see through that. And so so the history we write about ourselves has aspects of mythology in it and vice versa. There is historical aspects in mythology. So just because I say something's mythology doesn't mean it's not true. Um, and if we're going to say that the Old Testament, and the New Testament is mythological, well, obviously it is. And you know, this is why a lot of people get hung up to because they read about the life of Christ and are like, well, this is the same story I've seen in so many other religions. They'll usually get weird facts about you know being born of a virgin, all this stuff that end up not actually being true. But it, it's definitely true that you have a, an intense archetype with Christ being in Hades being dead for three days and coming back. I mean, that is the archetypal, you know, as Campbell will say, uh, hero's journey and happens in basically all religions. Um now, you know, you can you know, the Justin Martyr, you know, St. Justin Martyr approaching this is to say that Christ is the absolute total manifestation of the logos that everyone has intuited since Adam. Because, it's, I mean, we're looking at this also in very like modern historical terms to talk about Christianity. You know, if you, if you are a Christian, it, it, it is just the true religion that has been known since Adam. Not entirely, but Adam told the story of God the father to his children and so on. Even Cain was telling the story of God. It's not like Cain was polytheistic or Cain's descendants are polytheistic. You know, assuming this is all true, right? Polytheism took a long time to develop. It's a, degen- it's a degeneration from monotheism and then from there you get animism you know it's almost the opposite of what you see today in modern academia it's where everyone is animistic you know and in a tribal relationship with each other and then they got smarter and had polytheism and then they got really smart and now i have monotheism and now they're now they're smart as us and they're atheist right so it's this very like narcissistic way of reading history um and and i guess what i'm saying is You should be skeptical of the skeptics themselves, you should be skeptical of skepticism and you should try to read things in a more complex way where you're looking at actual levels of development in both ways. Um, You know, and sort of entertaining uh, multiple positions that are contradictory with each other at the same time. Um, And to look at that way with history, to be very critical of history in the way it's told. yeah, I'm not sure. Was there was there another specific question here, or am I just rambling? I guess in terms of the mythology,
1: um, I guess one of the questions people have is if 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 the Bible parts of the Old Testament, one of the most actually uh, per not persuasive, but one of the biggest arguments against Christianity is that if parts of the Old Testament didn't historically happen, they did not actually happen. How can you believe the Bible? Yeah. And I guess people now think that there's evidence that lots of parts of the Bible didn't happen or at least how they're written. And they would call that mythology sort of like how we think of Greek mythology with Zeus. And they would say that invalidates the rest of the Bible.
0: Yeah, again, I think this is just a weird modern obsession. Okay. I mean, I, I guess I understand where they're coming from, but it's like, I even read the Greek mythology. I don't think it's false. I think there was a guy named Zeus. You know, I don't think he was this all-powerful God. He was maybe, you know, the early church fathers say that Zeus was a real person, that he was either one of the watcher angels that fell, like in um, the Gregory, one of the 300 angels that fell with Lucifer, which were very powerful demons, who basically would find mountains and rule on top of mountains, and they became the sky fathers of all the pagan religions once they convinced humans to start worshiping them. And they had immense power, you know, over weather, mountains, earthquakes, whatever um odin zeus the the you know a lot of the early saints you know supposedly slayed these demons but some of them still survive like on top of mount kilimanjaro they'll tell you know you go there today only people on mount kilimanjaro white people because everyone around there knows you're not supposed to go there Like you know that's where voodoo comes from like that's the reason like you know pagan magic doesn't really do anything now most you know like neo-pagan western pagan magic because all their Skyfather daddy's died. But the voodoo daddy's still alive. You know, he's still up there on Mount Kilimanjaro. He hasn't been slayed yet. We need a Christian saint to go up there and slay him. And and so voodoo still has its power. Okay, Um, That's where magic comes from, is from the watcher angels. Or it was a very powerful, or it's a human who, a sorcerer, who became very uh, enraptured with demonic energy and was able to gain some of the demonic power associated through that energy. So... Was it? Correct me if I'm wrong. Going back, you mentioned Justin
1: Martyr yes. earlier. Correct me if I'm wrong. In his apology, he he didn't deny that the the emperors were gods. He more stated that they were evil, but he didn't deny that they were yeah. godly figures or or something more supernatural. Correct? Um, I or Is that someone else I'm, I'm thinking of?
0: Think I'm not quite sure. But the point would be something I think you would agree with. Um, okay. Th- there's a there's a becoming a god in both ways. You can become demonized. Uh, and become a God in that way, I mean humans already are gods, you know this is anything you know a good Hindu will tell you the the God self is in us already um we're all made in the image of God, whether or not you attain the likeness of God is up to your free will, but you can also attain the likeness of other gods, which is to say the fallen angels, and you can become demonized, so your godly your innate godliness can be um, put not towards the likeness of God but towards the likeness of his enemies and you, everyone has this God power to choose between good and evil. That's something only gods can do. You know, animals aren't really gods because they don't have this this decisiveness over their hearts with good and evil. Um, there are the kami spirits, for instance, in Shintoism, and that's a whole other thing. Uh, and these aren't exactly animals, but they have animal-like spirits. But they still have a sense of free will in the way they play tricks on humans or uh, steal or whatever in a way that a actual fox wouldn't, you know, versus a fox kami. So the, the God distinction is something that it happens in even very minor neutral spirits, a nymph, a uh, leprechaun, a fairy, troll, whatever, or um, in, in much higher spirits like angels and man um, to the ultimate God. You know, this is why the whole, you know, going back to this other topic, the whole monotheism, polytheistic distinction is so terrible. Because if you looked in depth enough to any polytheistic religion, since so let say Hinduism, you know, polytheism par excellence, you know, well, you have the Trimaverti and the Trimaverti is just three manifestations of the one Godhead. Okay, well, that's the Trinity, okay, in, in so many words. Um, doesn't have all the theological scruples that Christians do about it, but that basically is. I mean, you find this in a lot of paganism, really, is that you eventually narrow it down back to a Trinity, or if not a Trinity, just directly one God, one Sky Father, one All-Father. And everything else is just like a child or manifestation or his creations. Um, so, you know, you, you take the most polytheistic religions, you narrow it down to monotheism, and then you take the Abrahamic faiths. You know, this is why people now are confused when they read the Old Testament, and you get verses like in the Psalms where it's like, you know, he makes a seat among the gods. Well, what's that talking about? You know, we have this strict idea of like monotheism, you know, he can't be other gods. Okay, well, Christ says, are ye not gods? Okay, angels are gods, demons are gods, men are gods, spirits are gods, uh, God is God. Okay, but obviously there's the Lord of lords, mm-hmm. and then there's the Lord, and then there's all these other gods. <laughs> you know, the, the term modernist came up with this was henotheism. Okay. That, that there are many gods, but there's one God above them all. And if, if you're gonna if you're gonna have to be forced to use these modern vocabularies, I think that's probably the best for just any religion you're working with. Um, even animism has has an idea where all the spirits that exist in all creation and rocks and trees and whatnot ultimately from one source so i it seems to go against the entire human whether you want to look at this religiously, metaphysically, or in secularly, human psychology just seems hellbent on having an initial origin of the gods, okay, even if you want to take the sort of universe that is not, you know, created or destroyed, you know, sort of like the Hindu idea. Okay, well, it all happens within samsara, which is, you know, depending on which Hindu tradition you're going for, but sort of like a a fart that comes out of the emanation of the initial godhead, I guess. Um, So... With the problem you're talking about, Calvin, where people are, are looking at the old test, and it's like, well, you know, these scientific or archaeological studies shift every, every year or like every five years. So it's like, these to me just aren't very reliable. But even, you know, even if you like put faith in them, well, at the end of the day, that's the question it is. It's like, where do you put your faith? And where do you put your faith? And, you know, in the modern Enlightenment idea, we like to think of ourselves as very rational. And you know, I don't have faith, or if I have faith, I put it where reason leads me. But we're really quite irrational people, I, I think. I'm not. I'm not with the Enlightenment project here. That, so where you put your faith, which is to say, in these historical texts or whatever, or you know, these historians who are always changing their ideas about things and are flawed, or these ancient traditions. Um, I think the contradictions, even where these do come up, are usually quite superficial. And I think this again speaks to this modern obsession of literalness. Um, you know, I, I don't know, could you give me an example that I could work with? Like, do you know where these like archaeologists are saying like the, the old testament is contradicted or um okay. Let me think of I guess of the I guess the classics, like the Ark. Right? The Ark, yeah. yeah the, like you couldn't so, fit all those animals so, into the
1: Ark. So when I was uh, younger, I went to I was in a Christian homeschool co-op and I was taught there something that I I still I didn't then believe and I still don't believe, I don't think. I was taught that on Noah's Ark, he had every species alive at the time, which included all the dinosaurs Okay. on this boat. The dragons. Everything. Yeah. Dinosaur dragons. Well, the dinosaurs are okay. dragons, yeah. <laughs> um, and the whole world was covered in water. And I went home and I asked my parents about it, and they said, no, that was, that's talking about the whole known world at the time, which wouldn't be all the I world. See. It was the whole known world. And then I said that to a friend, and they said, well— if you're going to change it, you can change anything about the Bible. If you're going to change why, because what you're the Bible says the whole world. Yeah, but the whole world according to who? Well, that's that was my point, point. and <laughs> I guess it comes down to there there are people who very much believe that the Earth is exactly six thousand years old, uh-huh. that it was made in a literal seven days, and when people put it so literally, I think it becomes easy to to pick it apart with science. Well, okay, then, I.
0: I, I wanna say I think I think the issue of the seven days of creation or the literalness of uh God's creation in Genesis is very different from this problem of saying the whole world or the known world. Okay. I mean for me, I don't really care, but it's like it just it just it, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier where Protestants have sort of divinized scripture itself. Okay. And again, scripture could be destroyed and lost and in orthodoxy, that wouldn't be a problem. I think for Catholicism, it'd be a problem. It'd be a huge problem for Protestantism. okay? Because it's this idea that the exact way in which the scripture is written is the only possible way that the perfect scripture could be written. Like this is the Quran, okay? I do not think this is how the early Christians or even ancient classical Christians understood it. Okay. Um, so being obsessed with these ideas like, you know, does this writer mean the whole actual world in the view of God? Or does he mean the whole actual world in his view? Is like, is such a weird thing to be obsessed with to me. I think it's ridiculous. I don't think it really matters. Okay. Um, when you're talking about the seven days of creation, there is a lot more at stake there for a variety of mm-hmm. reasons. I mean, to me, it's just weird if if you're going to, to to bite the bullet on being a Christian because it's like, well, what is it that God would have? You know, are, like, is the challenge the idea that God couldn't do it? Like, is is there like a weird idea, or is it purely that? you know, we find these things about archaeology and science, again, which, you know, if you look into all that, like the, so much of that ends up being ideology where you put your faith. Uniformitarianism, for instance, and in geographical, or geological stratum understanding, um, versus uh, catastrophism. And it's like, most archaeologists believed in catas- catastrophism until the 50s. You know, there's this huge, huge, huge overthrow, ideological overthrow, not not scientific overthrow even. Ideological overthrow in archaeology that happened in the 50s, 40s and 50s. And you know, there are people like, uh, I think John Hancock, he talks about this. You know, he's a good source. He's on like that one podcast with the comedian, um, Joe Rogan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then if if this is something that really bothers you, you know, no matter what your bent is, I would recommend reading uh, Seraphim Rose's Genesis and Early Man. And um, I there's another guy, Hibane. Cabane. We can um, we can link them yeah. so they can read them. Um, there are very good sources on this. Hibane was an evolutionist who then became creationist. Sarah from Rose is a creationist, but he is relying on uh, scientific and patristic sources uh, in, in Genesis and Early Man that really goes over all this stuff pretty well. And the, the good thing about Sarah from Rose's book is that he has a lot of citations um, by later publishers on more recent scientific literature. Um, I think the level to which Protestants get into this is very indicative of where they are spiritually. <laughs> okay. Forgive me, but... Uh, I think it's it's mostly a weird. It, it's just a foreign concern to me. I mean, again, and so far, I have this part of me where I entertain the Christian truth. It's like, yeah, God created the earth in seven days. Like, I don't, I don't feel this need to metaphorize it or something because it's okay. like, um, why couldn't he? <laughs> or like the thing with Jonah and the well, like that hangs people up. I'm that like, was actually the one I was going to like, mention. Look, next this Jonah guy, will. we think, but you shouldn't even be debating this stuff. Like with Christians, like these targets are too weird to me. Like you should be targeting something like God created out of nothing. That was what the pagans challenged the early Christians on, which to me is like way more crazy and hard to believe than something like a whale swallowing a guy or a a big fish or whatever, a dragon or whatever, or God creating the world in seven days. Like this is something any pagan would believe. What pagans got disturbed over was the idea that he created from nothing. That's what's hard to believe. But if you swallow that, you know, I don't think even most liberal Christians dispute this, that God created out of nothing, right?
1: Yeah, if you swallow kind of that,
0: then everything else is just <laughs> is like, well, he created out of nothing, so why should all this other stuff be so hard to... I mean, if you, I'm saying if you swallow that, yeah. you've swallowed the whole thing already.
1: Yeah, if you're going to say he can create anything out of anything, why is it so hard to believe that a guy could live in the belly of a whale for a few days? Right. Okay. Or, or
0: even bending time and space to fit all these animals into the ark, which I don't even think you have to do necessarily. But if, if, you, want, if you need that to entertain yourself with this possibility that we have some weird pocket space dimension in Noah's Ark... Again, this guy created the laws of physics he he can break them right it, it's it's not it's just it just it's my point is that it seems like such a strange obsession to me is what okay I'm saying. the the whole the whole thing they did with the creation Museum, which actually I really like the ark I, I used to Do live you like ne- the ark I, I used to live next to it and I could see it, and I just like the idea of waking up every morning and knowing that if the world floods, <laughs> I can you know the Mormons have a prophecy that the year where there's no rainbow is when God uh, forgoes his promise. Oh, okay. And that is when the earth will flood again. So was it kind of a safety net living next to it? You know, if it Um, something went And the Amish built in. I trust the Amish. And it was just, I just love the absurd surrealism of waking up, going into my yard, and seeing a giant ship. It just made my day. I loved it. And uh, I, I mean, the Crazy Museum itself is weird. I went in there. The first exhibit was cool because they had all these quotes from the church fathers about dragons. I was like, all right, you know, this place is pretty woke. They know, they know dinosaurs are fake. And then I went to the next exhibits and suddenly they like changed schizophrenically and now it's all dinosaurs again. I was like, what happened to the dragons? We were calling them dragons. <laughs> and then you get to the section where it's like, you know, Luther saved the world or something. Like, okay, this is out of hand at this point. <laughs> So I was like, you know, you got you had me on the first exhibit, but after that you lost me. So
1: That's that's really funny because I know people who loved everything else and then like
0: they were so confused by the dragon. That's <laughs> the part they didn't like. No, St. Augustine is like it's like this idea that it's like in the 18th century we found dragon bones or something. You can read St. Augustine talking about dragon bones in North Africa. Um everyone knew about dragons. They just called them dragons. And in the 18th century it's like, "Whoa, you know, we found some big bones and we're not going to cover them up with Jesuit tricks, you know, anymore." So what are we going to do about it? Well, we'll make up a new term, call them dinosaurs and whatever, and, you know, arrange them in some arbitrary way that we say is factual, and then every five years, change what we think dinosaurs look like. It's like, who who trusts this stuff? It's ridiculous. Well, now
1: now they look like chickens. Now
0: they look like chickens. They're giant <laughs> chickens. I'm just like, look, giant chickens are dragons. You know, which way, Western man? You know, which way do you want to pick? Did, do you remember a few years ago,
1: actually several years ago, uh, a science professor at a UK lab, University of Kentucky lab, got fired for genetically engineering chicken eggs so that they would turn out looking like the velociraptors <laughs> from Jurassic Park.
0: That's the kind of thing that would only happen in Kentucky. <laughs> I just want to love Kentucky, though. It's like all these weird... You know, we we have a tradition of weird genetic testing. We do? Uh, John, uh, no, Hunt, Hunt Morgan. We have well, the UK library is named after him. He was the guy doing all... Transylvania library, I don't know. Doing all the weird... Gen- genetic testing Frankenstein stuff on flies, making them grow like 10 limbs or like 20 wings. or I didn't know about that. Yeah, and now we're growing ears on mice. So huh. we live in a Frankensteinian world for sure.
1: Now we're coming up to the 50 minutes. It says 50, but there, there are a few extra minutes because we started previously recording. Can you in about two or three minutes explain at a, at a base level why you think it is that people are obsessed with like the Creation Museum, those whole things you say, it's it's a foreign... Thing to you being caught up on these tiny yeah. little details. Do you do you know why why that I think it's because be? the
0: West and Protestantism in particular has been so robbed spiritually of actual experiential um, living out of faith. I think, Again, Protestant to me is just so intellectualized. There's many things I admire about Protestantism, but it gets so hung up on the scriptures, and I understand why historically it was reactionary to Catholicism making up things out of thin air, which we Orthodox criticize the Catholics for too. And so it's like, all right, where are we actually going to base our reaction to the Catholic church? What has been consistent you know, throughout the years? And they're like, well, scripture. So it makes sense, but I think it ends up making a worse situation out of something already terrible. And this, this obsession with scripture has so intellectualized the faith. So as Paul says, they've been killed by the word. They've been slain by the letter of the law. And you've lost any actual mystical capacity I mean, the, the Protestants I like the most, like Kierkegaard, who's an intellectual philosopher, he did not let himself be killed by the word. He, let, he transcended the, scriptures is, is very similar, I think the way it should be viewed to the way Orthodox view icons. And I talked about that before, mm-hmm. which is the icons are not the object of worship. They're windows into a deeper reality. Scripture is a window into a deeper reality. You know, like the the early Christian tradition of Lectio Divina, you meditate on the scripture, and then you pray, and then that leads you to a deeper realm of the noose. It's not imaginatory, you know. The the Catholics got into this weird Jesuit practice where, you know, you pray, and then you also imagine yourself with Jesus or whatever. I'm like, no, don't do that. That's very dangerous. Do not let the Im- the images are going to come. You know, just be zen about it. You know, let the image come, let it go. Don't don't judge it. Just let it let it through, and meditate on the heart. Meditate, to put your mind in the heart if you can, and you know, try to understand the presence of God and everything the presence of Christ and carry that meditation with you throughout the day, meditating on the scripture, but don't get hung up on the word itself you know the ultimate spirituality goes beyond the word the word will be totally lost the literal word so that you can get to the word which is Christ um is Christ or nothing okay and i think I think the problem with Protestantism here and the reason it so becomes so obsessive on the historicity and literalness is because it it's really Forgone this m- much deeper mystical tradition of the church
1: all right that makes a lot of sense we're to the end of the 50 minute hour i thought i think this was a very good podcast i think yeah, this was very every good. every
0: time i feel it passes quicker i felt like this is yeah. 20 minutes
1: <laughs> <laughs> we got to rename the podcast <laughs> any closing remarks before we shut down the uh
0: the mics um yes uh i would say uh beware uh the, the people who come into your doorway and say, uh, you know, do you, do you want to buy this, this magazine and, uh, tell them, uh, to beware the, the letter of the law.
1: Well, there you have it. See ya next time.